It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, bonus episode number one. That's right. This is an audio-only podcast, which you could argue is redundant. And in fact, I would argue is redundant, but things being what they are, this podcast also uh, airs over on the YouTubes, but not this week because I've got something else going on the YouTube channel uh, this weekend. And so you loyal listeners on actual podcast apps, you get an exclusive piece of content this week uh, where I'm not speaking from prepared notes as I normally do on the pod. I'm going to be in the hot seat and in the cold seat, I guess, is my lovely wife and uh, five-time published novelist, Lauren Morrill. Six. Mor- six. Six-time published <laughs> novelist, Lauren Morrill. What's the, it's, what's the, like, like thrice is three. Is there something like that for six? I have six Sixth. Six. Six. Sixth <laughs> published novelist, Lauren Morrill. And I told Lauren to like come up with something to talk to me about in advance that I don't know about. Um, and uh, I don't know what that is. And so... Honey, I, I, I passed the wheel of the pod car over to you. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, glad to be here. Oh. Long time listener. <laughs> Long time first time. Except for all the times where I ask you a food question and then you say, you didn't watch the video. <laughs> and I say, no, I surely did not. <laughs> I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. <laughs> I do watch a lot of them. But to be fair, you've been doing this for a long time now. So there's a lot. <laughs> And how many of my books the have you read? The thrill is gone. <laughs> um, and also, if I sound a little froggy. Lauren's got the vid. <laughs> I caught the COVID. Um, I can't believe it took this long. Oh, my God. I know. And Like, I was literally just starting to get smug. Like, maybe I'm immune. Maybe I have the secret genes. Maybe I should contact the scientists. Oh, you have the secret genes, honey. <laughs> I've known that for... Oh, dear. 17 years. Wow. That's a long time. I know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm on the end of it, but I'm still full of snot. Okay. Well, I'll do some editing to spare the listeners the <laughs> That's worst. Right. Um, so, let's start out with, I want to talk about um, a little bit about how things are about to change for you in the new year. Oh, we're doing this? Yeah. Yes. Well, audiences... Uh, Exciting announcement. Is <laughs> this that, isn't the first time you've announced it. Is yeah, it, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've, I've intimated, I've hinted. Okay, all right. Well, it's, it's great news for us, <laughs> for me in particular. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's terrible news for you, dear audience. Um, so here it is. Uh, I am cutting one video a week out of the schedule in the new year, in 2023. Woo! And... So that means there will be there will be a video like, like I've always done once a week, and there will be a pod uh, once a week. Just because I I really like what this podcast has become, how it sort of evolved. I really like the thing that it is, and it's it's kind of what I've always wanted to do, really. And um, and even though it doesn't get as much audience as the videos, I'd kind of rather do the pod than another video. Um, it's also kind of a more manageable workload because it's it's really just research. Um, whereas, whereas making a video is a ton of research and a ton of production and production is really time sensitive and kind of stressful. Whereas like the, you know, the day or two that I spend writing the podcast is, um, is really like, I mean, you've seen me, it's sort of a leisurely day. It's a lot of work, but I can kind of start and stop and, um, 
it's not like shooting a video where no I, one has to be quiet. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like everybody stare in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> um, I can be more of like a normal human uh, dad while writing a podcast. So the podcast is just kind of more conducive to to work life balance and sustainability and all of that than the vids. Uh, so, um, and I, I thought about going to one video a week for a long time, but just going to one, one video and that's it didn't feel like quite enough, uh, either for me or for you, dear audience. But when the podcast started, it seemed like, okay, one video plus one podcast a week, that seems like the perfect kind of compromise, uh, to, to make all of this sustainable. Cause like right now I'm dying. <laughs> uh, Lauren can attest to that. <laughs> I mean, Okay, so everyone's going to say, well, why don't you hire someone to help you? Why don't you hire an editor or someone to shoot or something? Why Why do you have to do it all by yourself? And what did I say to you when you, you suggested that I should start hiring? <laughs> I should start hiring camera persons to help me on my field shoots. And what did I say to you? <laughs> that you that the stress of having to talk to another human being <laughs> was worse than the stress of doing the work yourself or some such introverts get it you're out there in the audience you know what that's like i don't hate people but they're exhausting for me to be around and that seemed that, that would be so much more mental energy and all kinds of energy for me to deal with another person in addition to, uh, as opposed, uh, in terms of what I would save, right? Because like, I, it's it's less work for me to just shoot the damn video myself, you know, than to deal with another person. So, yeah, not going to do that. And also, I, I think that like p- part of the reason you, dear audience person, part of the reason that you like, you know, the things that I make, um, and, and I think part of the reason you like a lot of the things that other like content creators on YouTube and and Pod, I think part of the reason you like what they make is is the authenticity that comes from it being a, a mom and pop production, right? Um, it was funny. I was like watching, I, was, I forget. I mean, cause I watch, I, I, I watch like a lot of history documentary type stuff on, on YouTube. And the other, the other day I watched a, a documentary that was clearly not YouTube native. Like it had been made for TV and then, ported into YouTube, which is funny because remember that remember when that was all YouTube was, was just like TV stuff that people had put onto YouTube. Oh, like clips and stuff. Yeah, clips. Um, and and now we've we've created this, you know, the, the ecosystem has evolved such that most of the content that's on YouTube is is native YouTube. It was made for YouTube mm-hmm. or, or, or for the internet, you know, for YouTube and similar channels, right? There's very little content comparatively, proportionally, that was like made for TV and then put onto YouTube. And so I, I was like watching these, you know, history videos and this one, that, you know, that was clearly made for TV came up. And I was just shocked and aghast by how tonally off it was, right? It was just that TV thing, history announcer, and you won't bull. We're going back in time to do the bot and the, the thing and the the the. I mean, then, to be fair, I don't think all documentaries are like that. TV documentaries I are get, like that. Uh, well, maybe I'm. I just we just watched the PB. Well, I watched it, and you sort of watched it by being around me. Um, that. PBS Ken Burns U.S. and the Holocaust. Yeah, it's, it didn't sound like that. No, but it's Peter still, Coyote doesn't sound like no, that. No, Peter Coyote's <laughs> Peter Coyote is a legend for a reason. Okay, um, for people who don't know, he sort of he does uh, all of the voice work, the narration work for Ken Burns films, and and, lot, and I think other public broadcasting stuff. Um, he's also an actor, and you'd know him if you saw him. Oh, he's he's a that guy. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, you'd be like, oh, that guy. Ah. <laughs> so go go Google him right now. You're saying he's killed someone on Law and Order, right? <laughs> he might be too big for Law and Order. Whoa. I think Whoa. he's like a film guy. <laughs> I, okay. I'm not a television actor, all right? <laughs> there was a time. I'm cinema. When being on television meant you were on like the love boat and it was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, I think a a tonal divide has formed between TV and, and internet TV. Or, or specifically kind of when it comes to nonfiction stuff, because you know, where, where TV and conventional production structures still make the best content is in like fictional scripted series, mm-hmm. right? Like nobody's doing, nobody's doing The Wire on YouTube yet, right? <laughs> Natively for YouTube. I mean, even though YouTube has thrown money at projects like that, I don't think any of them have like hit. Um, so... So that that that's but like in terms of like real you know reality co- based content documentaries uh, chat shows uh, you know, unscripted stuff um, that stuff just the stuff that's on TV now that feels as tonally different from kind of YouTube documentarian type stuff as TV feels tonally different from cinema or felt different from cinema in generations past. <laughs> and anyway, so I'm watching this, like I'm watching this history doc that was made for clearly made for like the history channel or, or, you know, TLC or something that had been ported onto YouTube. And it would seem so inauthentic and stupid. And I wondered if I was the only one who was thinking that. And then I just kind of, you know, scrolled down to the comments and everyone was just being like, why do these people talk to us like we're stupid? <laughs> like, and, and I was like, well, because it was made for somebody who is sitting in the car dealership mm-hmm. with the big TV and they don't have control of their remote. Right. It's what, <laughs> what they called the undifferentiated audience. So it's just you had to or, or the, the uncharitable way of saying it is that it's for the lowest common denominator. You have to script for the stupidest person who might be watching your TV show, not just stupid, but just most unfamiliar with the content. Mm. Right. Whereas like if you're searching YouTube for a documentary on Richard the Lionheart or something, which is probably what I was knowing me, that's probably what I was watching. <laughs> right. Um, you know, if you if you type Cur de Leon into YouTube, like you probably kind of have a base of knowledge and you're looking to either add to that base of knowledge or just kind of be entertained by someone else going through the stations of the cross of Richard the Lionheart and his history. Um, and so anyway, so in TV, in TV days, you had to like, yeah, you had to write for that person in the car dealership who had no idea what you were talking about, did not know why they should care because they had not actively sought out your program. So you had to really sell it, you know? This is just going to be the most exciting history and blah, 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 right? So you had to really kind of sell it like a street hawker and you had to write such that people could dip in and out because television was, uh, was uh, synchronous, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, people couldn't stop, stop and start as they please until they got TiVo. Remember what a revolution, revolution TiVo was God, in our lives? I remember when we got TiVo. That it was cl- so exciting. You remember that clicky click sound? The yep. like Ding, ding. Ding, ding. Oh, uh. that was... Man, when you did not have to like be home in order to catch the Daily and Show then you or whatever, could fast forward through the commercials. Mm-hmm. Fast forward through the commercials. Unbelievable. We used to TiVo Lost. Mm-hmm. You and I were very into Lost, and we were very into TiVoing The Office. Yeah, yeah. Two shows that started very strong. Yeah. Didn't end super strong. There were some things in later Office that were kind of funny. 
I don't think I watched it all, though, now that I think about it. First two seasons. That's the, After that, it's dead to me. <laughs> Anywho, um, so back <laughs> to what we were talking about. So, oh, yeah, you're quitting. <laughs> yeah, I'm quitting. Yeah, that's right. I, that's the thing. You, you deprived me of like the chance to like do a clickbaity YouTube video where the headline is like, the end. And then everyone comments about like, Adam, I love you, but. Yeah, you, you don't need to stoop to that kind of clickbait. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so I think part of the reason, <laughs> so TV sucked for a lot of reasons, and tonally it feels tremendously inauthentic now in TV style programming like that. And part of that was sort of the audience that TV had to work for and the viewing environment that TV had to work for. But I think also is that like TV shows take whole production companies to make. And so they don't really express anyone's individual personal vision. Um, they sort of have this institutionalist or corporatist voice because so it takes a corporation of people to make them. You're an auteur. I'm an auteur. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is like, I'm a, a I'm a one man band. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who sings on the street, you know, a busker. I'm a busker. I'm a busker. And my guitar case is open and ready for them, for them. Sweet, sweet bills. <laughs> Wherever you keep them, I'll take them. I feel like this is the point in the conversation where we should point out that I have been invited to speak more than just asking the questions. (laughs) Because the last time we did one of these, which was an Ask Adam, and people were like, why is the wife talking so much? One commenter said that. (laughs) And and then somebody, no, there were a bunch. And then somebody else, why is the wife so annoying? Oh. And I replied, (laughs) I don't know, but when you figure it out, please do let me know. <laughs> uh, it's easy to laugh about, but on the other hand, like, you know, die in a fire. Um, oh, I mean. <laughs> because, cause, you know, you may be, if you're like, if, if you're 15 and you're doing, you're writing that kind of crap, you may think that like, oh, like grown people are not bothered by that. Dude, you're going to find out, you're going to grow up and people are going to talk shit about you on the internet and it's still going to bother you. It still hurts. Mm-hmm. Stop it. It's interesting because I was thinking the other day about how like our evolution with the internet, like we grew up with the internet. We grew up with like we came of age as social media came of age. We became adults as social media became ubiquitous. And like, thank God for that, because we were all making mistakes at the exact same time that everyone was making mistakes because nobody knew. And now I feel like people are expected to know. But at 20, even 22 you're still making dumb mistakes. Oh, yeah, and just saying really stupid <clears throat> crap. Yeah. yeah, and like, yeah. So I, I do have a little a little grace, I guess, for people because it's like as you grow up, you figure things out and you will regret whatever it was you did at 17 and yes. 22 and 25. I don't and, actually yeah. want you to die in a fire <laughs> commenter, assuming that you were 15. You might, If you're a 40-year-old no, who's talking ad- like a 15-year-old, then adult. yes, I kind of want you to die in a fire. <laughs> um, but if you're too young to know better, then like – I still want you to feel bad about it because I want you to learn from the experience. But like, I, I still love you. And I, I believe that, you know, you can become a better person as we all strive to be as we get older. And good luck to you in that journey. And good luck to us all in that journey. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like I'm still figuring all that stuff out. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, <laughs> the reason I don't hire someone to help make videos is that I think part of the reason that like the videos are good is that it's just me. 
right? And so it's just, it's me and all of my weirdness and, and my competencies and my incompetencies. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a human, authentic, handmade, bespoke product, right? Artisanal pod and vid. Um, whereas, and I, I, you're starting to see it as, as YouTubing is becoming um, such a profitable biz, right? You see some YouTubers get big enough that they hire a staff and I think it does start to feel less real. It's starting to feel a little fakey fake in ways that are alienating to me. And the best really big YouTubers are, are people who have found a way to avoid that trap. Like they clearly have a, a staff of 10 working with them, but they find a way to, to, to infuse everything about what they do with, with their persona or maybe it's not them. Maybe it's the people working for them who really deserve the credit, who've, you know, people, people editing for Mr. Beast who really internalized how Mr. Beast used to edit his own videos. They've really sort of mapped out what that editing style is and they inhabit it. They go into the Mr. Beast state of mind. <laughs> uh, they have to, they have to, to, to edit the beast, you have to become the beast, right? Um, but I think we've reached a point <clears throat> Excuse me. By the way, I want to point out that I had I had absolutely no idea who Mr. Beast was until one of our children started watching Mr. Beast. It is wild to me how like these portals to worlds open up to me and I'm like, "Oh my god, millions of people knew and loved this thing that I had no idea existed yeah. until, you know, my 7-year-old clicked a button and yeah. then I was like, "Oh, Oh yeah. wow! This is a phenomenon. Uh -huh. There, well, it's just a reminder that there's no more monoculture. Yeah. Well, for the olds in the audience who don't know, Mr. Beast is is, is he? I think he might be literally the most popular YouTuber. Like he's mm -hmm. he's got like a hundred million subscribers, and his whole thing is that he he sort of does um, good-hearted philanthropic pranks. Yeah, he like, gives away tons and tons of money. Yeah, gives away lots of money for people having to do silly things. And so it's it's kind of like like Jackass was back in in the day on MTV, except much better hearted, mm -hmm. um, not so nasty or gross out. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know I think he I think he knows that most of his audience is very young, and he doesn't want parents getting freaked out that their kids are watching Mr. Beast. Like I feel comfortable when the kids watch Mr. Beast mm -hmm. for that reason. So it's sort of like good hearted prank pranksterism, and then he's got like side channels where he just plays video games because that's. <laughs> All our children are interested in watching is yeah. watching other people play video games. And like Mr. Beast Gaming has like 50 million subscribers or something like that. I mean, it's 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 completely insane. I mean, I when I think of like how how radically our lives changed when I got to like a million subscribers mm -hmm. and then multiply that by like a hundred. Oh my like, god. Un unfreaking believable. But he's that's an example of where I think somebody's doing it right. Like like it still feels like Jimmy's channel, right? Mm. Whereas I'm not gonna name anybody, but I see other YouTubers who have staffed up and it doesn't really feel like them anymore. And to me that's alienating. And maybe it's not for other people. I mean obviously they still people in question probably still have way more like subs than I do. Um, but it, it loses interest for me. And I, I think one of the things that I like about what I make is that I make it and nobody else that may just be the introversion talking. And I just, I just really don't want to have to work with another human. <laughs> um, but that's what it is. So come, uh, 2023, 
I will be doing one video a week. I we haven't talked about what day of the week it's going to come out on. I don't know what it's going to be. I think it'll probably whichever sp- one avoids you working on the weekends. Yeah, maybe Tuesday is the new release day because also it, being having having a video on Monday creates problems with sponsor approval because you know this for to pull back the the, the pod curtain um, the uh, the sponsors they they don't get to like approve the whole video but they get to approve like their ad that I make in the video and you got to give them the general practice is 48 hours business hours, like four, like two, two business days advance. So that means that in order to have a video go live Monday at 2 PM Eastern time, I have to send it to them by Thursday, 2 PM Eastern time. Um, even because you got to account for the weekend. Right. And, and even with that, because it's the end of the week and people are busy and then it goes into the weekend, it can sometimes be, be, it can sometimes be hard for the sponsor to actually review the video in time. And that's created some delays in terms of Monday publication and not, not because anybody was off the ball It's totally understandable situations, but that's kind of a problem. Um, and then if like if they want to change, if they want anything changed in the video, then yeah, I'd have to work on the video uh, on the weekend to do that. Um, so anyway, I yeah maybe Tuesday, and I think one, one we'll probably still alternate between the like recipe video and other kind of video about food, right? We'll still do that kind of one to one alternation for the time being. Oh, is alternation is that a word? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's the COVID talking. I have no idea. We have to make the alternations. Um, I don't know. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited for you. I think it's going to be good for you personally, for this household. And I think it's going to be good for the videos because I think you're like working up against the gun was good for a time, but we've reached the top of the bell curve and it's going to start having diminishing returns and giving more space to breathe. I think... And also, you'll be able to travel now, you know, we're coming out of COVID, (laughs) she says, with COVID. Um, So hopefully you can travel more and do more of the, like, Mr. Rogers style visit to the Crayon Factory. Or no, yeah, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers in the Crayon Factory, yes. Yeah. By the way, I I pulled that up on the computer the other day because I wanted to show it to the kids. Mr. Rogers visits the Crayon Factory. Yeah. And I, and it was like a, it was like a high, it was like a high- um, a high resolution. It was like an HD transfer mm-hmm. of the original video tape of that episode. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the digital compression that was the problem. It was like the original, like standard TV standard definition resolution. Mm-hmm. Like you can't see a damn thing in the new one. No, no, the original, oh. the original Mister Rogers Cran Factory episode. Oh. Though just just TV back then was so freaking blurry. Yeah, because of because it was standard definition and and it, like you can't see a damn thing and it's so crazy and it makes you realize like you know because i struggle constantly with focus you know when filming for my videos right and you realize that back in the day they not everything could be in sort of a pretty like on a wide focal plane like things didn't have to be crispy in order to look good on tv because everything was going to get blurred out a little bit in the Mm -hmm. in the in the res in the res right or lack thereof and it also meant that like sets didn't have to look as good and it didn't matter if you had like one flake of dandruff on your shirt. Whereas like when I have one flake of dandruff on my shirt for like a, for a, a talking head, like people notice um, <laughs> because everything is so damn crispy now. 
Boy, that's the thing that, I mean, you just, I, that, Mr. Rogers at the Cran, Cran Factory, we watched it and you can barely see the crayons. The resolution is so poor and it's not the digital transfer. It's the original video. TV just used to look like that. Hmm. It's weird. Anyways. I, so yes, I think it'll, I think here's the upside for you viewers, for me going to one, one, one vid and one pod a week. I think the upside is that, yes, I think the videos will get a little bit better. Um, chiefly from travel. And I actually, I have some travel booked right now for the next couple of months that I'm pretty excited about. So I'll be able to get, travel more for vids and take you to cool places. Fewer vids from the backyard, which that's what I've been leaning on lately. It's like, <laughs> I, I have I have like, I'm so, I have, I'm out of time. I spent too much time on the other video. I have one day to come up with something. I just walk around in the backyard and find something that <laughs> we're like, oh, I can put a camera on that and get a video out of it. Oh, the fig tree. Yeah, fig wasps. There we go. And so it's less of that, right? I can go, I can travel more. I think the videos may get a, a tad longer and a tad sort of more but refined. But not too much. But not too much. Because for me, what I know I need to do is that it's like, I can't fall into a trap where I just let the task grow to occupy the greater amount of time available in which to perform it, right? Which I think is a very natural thing that you do uh, listener probably do in your own work or you're familiar with that that like tasks tend to take the amount of time allotted to them and you will fill that time with stress or dithering or um, you know perfectionism or whatever and for me that's totally what I'm going to do unless I actively guard against it so I have to be like no just it's good enough, you know. Don't don't get precious about everything just because you have the time to get precious about everything. Do, do I have permission to remind you of that? Frequently? Absolutely, absolutely. That's the only way I'm going <laughs> to gonna be a nag. Su- the only way I'm going to survive. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's one way in which it's going to be better for you, dear audience. The other is that I, you know, with this new schedule, I think I'll be able to do this job for you know longer, longer for. Decades to come, potentially, <laughs> if you're assuming that you're still there, dear audience. Um, whereas at the current pace of work, like... You're going to uh, flame out yeah, I in would, six months. I could literally die. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, I'm, like, I'm dealing with like, kind of that level of, like, metabolically measurable stress. Um, and it's just time for it to stop. So it's going to stop. And that's the deal. And I hope you're not mad, dear listener. I'm excited. I know we're all very excited. I'm excited to in the Ragu- have life in the back. Ragusea household. Yeah. For you to have hobbies again. <laughs> what are your hobbies? I bought that drum set, but I haven't played it. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You can like make music for fun. Yeah, everybody loves it. Everybody loves to hear like the 40 year old with the home studio. Hey, you don't have to play it for anybody. You it's just true. do it for fun. <laughs> There's um so uh old 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 acquaintance uh of mine, BJ Lederman, I was just talking to him. Uh old older members of the audience who listen to like NPR may recognize that name. BJ Lederman wrote the theme music for Morning Edition and uh uh, and a bunch of other NPR programs. That's BJ Lederman. And he he wrote like a whole bunch of NPR theme songs that are, you know, those, those are for people outside of the United States. Those are like NPR Morning Edition is, I think, still the second most popular radio program in America. 
And maybe now the first, now that Rush Limbaugh died, it was always number two to Rush Limbaugh. I wonder who's number one now. But anyway, like, and that's back when, you know, when radio was actually far more important in the, in the zeitgeist than it is now. So it really incredibly, incredibly famous shows, incredibly famous music, incredibly famous name, because even though BJ Liederman was never on the shows, they always gave him a credit because he did it for very little money when he was very young and NPR was very young and they had no money. And, uh, and they said, well, we'll give you the credit. Um, so anyway, the thing about BJ was like, he was, he was sort of a, a prodigious kid. Um, and I think he was just, he was like in college or f- maybe fresh out of college when he wrote those, those NPR themes and, and became famous because of them. And then he's had sort of a, you know, sort of a weird life after that with a bunch of, you know, interesting twists and turns. And, and I, I met him and talked to him a long time years ago because I wrote a really, really long profile about him for uh, this newspaper I used to work with called Current, which was like the trade publication of public broadcasting uh, in the United States. And, and, uh, and it was funny. And he just, he just called me the other day to, to talk about something. And it rem- reminded me of this like meme that BJ Lederman posted on his Facebook the other day that was like the life of the, of the artist Life of the Artist. It was a timeline with like three sections of the timeline. The shortest one at the beginning of the timeline was like prodigious kid or like promising kid. Mm-hmm. Then there's the slightly longer timeline, a chunk of the timeline in the middle was um, burned out disappointment. <laughs> and then the longest line section of the timeline at the end was old weirdo with a home studio. <laughs> That sounds right. <laughs> I know. I know. It me. It me. <laughs> it me, BJ. Well, soon you're be able to use that home studio. It'll be exciting. Mm. So speaking of change, um, you've been doing this now for what? Three and a half years? Coming up on four. Yeah, I guess it'll be four in like March. Yeah. Um, and it'll be March before we know it. Um, so how has your relationship with cooking changed since cooking on YouTube became your job. Oh wow, massively. And and sort of one of the to me this is one of the bad things that's happened to our life <laughs> oh, as in, in response to what has happened. I mean it's 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 a massive net positive dear audience. Oh yes. Love you. Thank you so much. We are super appreciative. Super appreciative. <laughs> Everything is better, but this is one this is one <laughs> downside. And I think it's a downside that's made my work worse, right? Like I think part of the thing that was good about my recipe videos when I first started and why people liked them was that I was, I had the same basic life situation that they did. You know, cooking was not this like super precious thing. It was just this thing that we did out of necessity. So that we could eat good things. So that we could have something to eat. (coughs) And 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 I think and people liked that, you know, I, I wasn't like a, you know, Gordon Ramsay type or whatever, <laughs> just like doing food as art or in the case of like Gordon Moore, you know, I, I, food as expression of genitalia size, right? <laughs> food as uh, punishment. Food as punishment, that's right. <laughs> food as shame. Um, and uh, people don't like that. And they like that, like, it was like our, it was like our shitty old kitchen, you know, that, it was falling apart and Aww. yeah, it's a good kitchen. No, it wasn't, but RIP, 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 old kitchen, um, RSVP old kitchen. That's a, uh, that's a joke. That's like for 1% of the audience yeah, that's was, out there. That one went right over. That head. one's for you fods. Um, a- anyway, they're going to love it. Okay. 
RSVP old kitchen. Um, and people liked that. And then, then, you know, things happened and I started cooking for a living, not in the way that like actual chefs cook for a living, but I still cook for a living. Right. Yeah. And it, and it, so it changed the way I cook and I feel like how I cook and what I do in the kitchen is just drifted further and further away from the reality that you dear listener live. And I wonder if that has alienated you and made the content less relevant to you and less useful to you. I worry about that sometimes because as much as I try to stay true to true to my roots, you know, you know, it's pretty rare that you cook a meal for that's not for like you make pancakes for the kids Mm -hmm. and holiday meals. You like make Christmas and Thanksgiving. And other than that, all cooking is recipe development. Every you know? once in a while, I'll be like, can you make me some pasta? Yeah, or something. <laughs> and then you you make like some unbelievably delicious oh, garlicky fish posh. plate of heaven. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that that's not great. But as a result, I have started cooking more. That's true. I that's used true. to never cook. Yeah. And I hated it. You got game. And I, I learned, I learned to cook some things. What was that thing you made for your, for your, for your, for your COVID throat the other day? Pastina. Uh, Pastina. Tell the people about Pastina. Pastina. Okay. So I was shocked that you didn't know what Pastina was because you're Italian. Barely. You have an Italian grandmother. Lots of people on the internet would dispute that characterization of me. Okay. But you have like a legit Italian grandmother Mm. and Pastina is Italian grandma food. They call it Italian penicillin and it's. Because it's fungus. <laughs> it, it's the little pasta stars with cooked in chicken broth and um, par- like pecorino or parmesan, not shake cheese, but like real grated cheese. And then um, some recipes tell you to whisk an egg in, some don't. I did the egg. You like cook it down to a porridge. It was, del- it was so good. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing about it. It's not, it's not a, it's not like a soup. It's not pasta. You cook it like rice. Like yeah. it absorbs all the liquid. It was, yeah, it absorbs all of the free liquid in the pot. It's like the texture of oatmeal. Yeah, so it's it delicious. results in a kind of a porridge consistency. It's warm and salty and starchy, and it's great for when you feel sick. Yeah, and I think the trick that you discovered was that you... It's the exact right moment to stir in the egg. Yeah, I did you don't it want the er- egg to curdle. You want it to go kind of custardy. Yeah, I did it too soon, and so the white you could see some like some streaks white, of right, white, white, yeah. And I because I did take it off the heat first, and then whisk it in. But I should have taken it off the heat and let it sit just for a few seconds to cool down. Yeah, and then you got to whisk really fast. Sure, certainly, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was re- that was really good. Yeah, I was surprised by how good that was, and I was thinking that like you could sort of class it up. Yeah, you could class it up, or <laughs> or, or just decarb it slightly, and just you know, no, well, no, put you could put some vegetables in it. Don't you like vegetables? I like vegetables. I mean, honestly, I'm thinking about it now, and I don't think I've eaten a vegetable. That's not true. I did get I though during when I had COVID. I still have COVID. What am I talking about? Um, I got that delivery from Cabo. Those are the only vegetables I've eaten all week. There's a lot of cabbage. Yeah. Um, I make yeah. those Korean meatballs. You like those too? Those are good. Yeah. The, the binder is Ritz crackers. crackers. Oh my God. Yes. Is that a Chrissy Teigen recipe? No, that's a New York Times recipe. Oh, the, the stipu- New York Times? stipulates Ritz crackers and they are correct on that because they're very buttery. It's better than panko. Mm. It makes a very buttery, juicy meatball. 
Well, that's another way in which I feel my relationship to food has changed over the last few years. And I don't think it has anything to do with YouTube or you know the change in our lifestyle or anything like that. I think it's just getting older, which is that I really don't like garbage foods as much as I used to. Yeah, they um, hurt. They hurt your body, yeah. <laughs> um, which makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, like fried stuff. I have almost no interest in anything deep fried anymore. Um, those meatballs, like I, I like them, but like I don't like all the Ritz crackers in them. It's like, it's just too rich and too salty. And I, I just... don't, I think that's a suggestion in your head. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, I sincerely crave vegetables and stuff more. Yes. And that's also, that's also in response to the fact that like, as people know, um, you know, the last eight months or so, I, I've, you know, I tried to get on a good exercise routine that I'm really sticking to and just trying to be fitter. And it's, you know, when you, when you do that, my experience at least is that when you do that, when you, when you're keeping to a fitness routine, you, you sincerely crave better things. It's like your body is calling out for lean protein and, and fiber and, and micronutrients and stuff. And, um, at least that's how it feels to me. So yeah, I just don't, I kind of want, oh, I hate to use this term because I think it's really problematic, but cleaner food. Ugh. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I sincerely kind of crave cleaner you, food no, these days. You, you crave more like whole foods, not to, like that, like the grocery store, but like you, you want unadulterated vegetables and less adulterated meats and I, know, I like a little adulteration here and there. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I appreciate that your relationship to cooking has changed because it has changed my relationship to cooking. Mm -hmm. Because before you did YouTube, I used to be like, I'm going to make this a recipe. And then I would get halfway through it and I would be frustrated and I didn't want the thing anymore. And I would throw the spoon down and then you would have to finish making it because yeah. I just hated it. Yeah, I was like a script doctor in Hollywood <laughs> coming in the, in the middle of and a- And you'd like test a thing and be like, this recipe yeah. called for what now? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> My favorite is anytime I'd make something that called for you to cook like bacon or something and then wipe out the pan and you'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> no, don't wipe out the pan. Well, don't wipe out the pan and then put in some other kind of fat <laughs> and just leave well enough alone. Like that's, I, yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was like, what? yeah, I think that I have learned like absorbed from being around you. I can suss out better now bad recipes mm. like you have taught me how to look at something and be like oh that's bullshit i should just do that instead what are the red flags to you i mean like you said i think like using too many extra pans for things or weird steps for stuff or like why would i take that out of the pan and then put something else in and then add it back when i could just cook all those things together or you know mm -hmm. leave it in there for the flavor or um yeah, some things like that or... That's another... I, I don't know how to quantify it, but like, can't you, you sort of... When you've cooked enough recipes, you can look at a recipe and know that it's going to have no flavor. <laughs> oh, right? yeah. Like, okay, so there's this... Like, there's not enough ingredients in this, you <laughs> well, know? Well, there's this recipe that I found when I was pregnant with our second kid and I had decided that I was going to pre-make and freeze a bunch of things so that we could... Meal prep. Yeah. I, Hashtag meal prep. First time in my life, last time in my life I ever meal prepped. But thank God I did because we had a kid with a broken leg and a newborn. And in, yeah. 
Anyway, so I had found this recipe for like this tuna noodle casserole from mm. Martha Stewart. And I was like, Martha Stewart, she knows what she's talking about, right? I'll make this recipe. And um, it was like a Mediterranean tuna yeah. noodle. And I started mixing it and I kept tasting it. And I was like, it doesn't taste like anything. Like, why does the sauce not taste like anything? And then you came and looked at the recipe and you were like, there's no seasoning in yeah. this. That's some white lady shit right there. <laughs> you started like dumping in garlic powder and like paprika and other things. And and now that's, I mean, we should we should have that soon. It's delicious. Yeah. Um, but as it was made, it was not good. And I think there was another Martha Stewart recipe I made too where you were, it was a, a Salisbury steak. Mm, yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. And you were like, this gravy doesn't taste like anything. anything yeah. Um, no hate to Martha, by the way. I actually, I you know, I, I admire Martha quite a lot. I think um, this was late stage Martha, where Martha had nothing to do with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Somebody uh, talk about staffing up. <laughs> the, the one thing you did get from that uh, that Martha Stewart stewer, um, as they say in France, <laughs> um, tuna nuda castle recipe that I think was awesome. Artichoke hearts. was the was the pickled like jarred artichoke yeah, hearts. Yeah, marinated artichoke hearts. Super good in a casserole. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah it, yeah, it was like a roux that we put a bunch of garlic in and then um, like finely sliced red peppers. You were sp- Martha says you have to use the tuna that's packed in oil yeah. because that's better. Yeah. So use that tuna and then the marinated artichoke hearts Yeah, and egg noodles. And then you, fr- and it, it's a great freezer meal. Yeah. Highly recommend. Yeah. I got to, th- before I do another tuna thing, I have to like think more about the sustainability issues of tuna and whether or not I should ever be cooking tuna on my channel. Like that's another thing that's changed since, you know, but is canned tuna farmed tuna. So it doesn't matter. It's it's, it's a lot. There's definitely canned tuna that is way worse than other canned tuna. Not all tuna is equally horrifically unsustainable. Right. Right. Um, But I just need to think about that. And I, you know, to my discredit, I used to never think about that kind of stuff in terms of our own cooking, you know, mm-hmm. just because I just, you know, like everybody else, I just had m- more pressing things in my own life to worry about, you know, but now where I like, there's this like force multiplier effect where like anything I do on my kitchen that I film will be imitated by th- literally thousands of people all over mm-hmm. the world. And so anything that I do that is really harmful to some animal population or something or like gets multiplied a thousand fold, more than a thousand fold. And I, so I've had to think about you, you, how can, how can you not think about that? You're a terrible person if you don't think about that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and the last time I cooked tuna was the, like the, I did a rest, uh, video that was like chicken salad and tuna salad and egg salad. Oh yeah. And I just, I just completely forgot to think about tuna and sustainability with that video. I just, am I getting the right kind, you know? Am I guiding people toward the right kind? Because tuna has some really, really, really bad issues associated with it, um, stemming from, I think, chiefly the the feed conversion ratio issue with tuna, which is like feed conversion ratio is how much feed do you have to give to an animal in order to get an equivalent amount of like meat out of it. Like how many pounds of feed go into <coughs> raising one pound of chicken. And with chicken, the it all the birds already had like really efficient 
feed conversion. And, you know, you can say a lot of bad things about the American style, like chicken industry, like you can say a lot of bad things about it. But the, the level of industrialization and kind of, science, kind of scientification of it has resulted in unprecedented feed conversion ratios. And they have said that their goal is one-to-one feed conversion. And they're apparently close to that point. It's like 1.2 feed conversion ratio for American corporate factory farm chicken, which is, that's a good thing about that kind of chicken, if we're going to be eating chicken at all. Sure, but then what are the other environmental side effects of that kind of chicken farming? I know. It's, okay, so you're interested in food, I'm interested in um, skincare. And it's it's the same thing as when somebody is like, well, this product doesn't contain petrolatum because mining petroleum and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, but the other thing that you put in instead required like, 11 billion tons of water and then you had to like get it out of the ground Mm. with tractors and transport it across the globe and so are you just as bad (laughs) and that's that's another problem of doing what i do is because when i try to think responsibly like i i kind of think am i sure that this is really the right practice to to advance to people like so, so somebody like yell, you know, people were yelling at me once for using Teflon pans, using, you know, nonstick pans. And because it's true that the factories that make uh, nonstick coatings are, are, you know, emit these, her, these horrific forever chemicals into the environment that are, are conclusively linked to some bad health outcomes and are maybe linked to some other bad health outcomes. And so absolutely you are kind of the pan itself probably isn't very dangerous to you, but the factory that made it is, and you, you are contributing to that problem when you buy nonstick cookware. And I'm contributing to that problem a thousand fold when I use nonstick cookware and thereby encourage other people, if only implicitly to use nonstick cookware. And so people, somebody was yelling at me about that. And what I said, back was, well, I hear you, but are you really sure that the alternatives are better? Because let's think the problem with these conversations, the people never talk realistically about what the alternatives are, what people are going to do instead of using that product that you think is evil. Um, A classic example of that is being the conversations around kind of beef and the sustainability of beef. And yes, beef is really, really bad for the environment. Beef production is really, really bad for the environment in several key ways. But on the other hand, it's like, what would happen to all of that grazing land if cows weren't there? Like, how would it be developed? How would it be used? It could potentially be used in much more injurious ways to say nothing of what people would eat instead of beef. And Lord knows if that would be worse or better. But anyways. Bugs. Um, bugs, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's a video to do at some point. Um, so the, uh, the, uh, the pan thing, it's just like kind of like, well, yes, absolutely. Make it, you know, nonstick pans, the production of nonstick pans is bad for, for environmental health in a number of ways ways. But like, what are you going to use instead? Are you going to use like a a well-seasoned cast iron or carbon steel? Are we sure that's actually better for the environment? Like they're they're vastly heavier, right? Way, way more metal has to go into making a pan like that. And are you aware of how horrific like iron and steel production is for the environment, <laughs> like from the mining to the smelting to the all, all of it. It is it is one long environmental horror show to say nothing of like the trucking of all of those unbelievably heavy pans to the stores and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, 
And then, okay, you're going to season them, right? And so that involves like burning a bunch of oil onto the pan, which people usually do these days in a hot oven. And have you thought about the environmental impact of like leaving the oven on 500 for three hours in order to season the pan or whatever? Um, And then- Let's be let's be real, okay? Like I, I like cast iron cookware, but a well seasoned pan is nothing compared to a Teflon pan in terms of its nonstick properties, right? Yeah. So factor in the environmental effect, impact of all of the meals that people ruin because <laughs> they stick to the pan, <laughs> and then they throw it out and they try it again. And these those each of those things may be very kind of small in relation to the environmental degradation of nonstick cookware production, but if you add them all up, it might be worse. I really, I legit do not know. And like no one has, no smart person has like done that study, you know, um, to say nothing of the fact that nonstick pans are not the only place where you buy nonstick coatings. Nonstick coatings are ubiquitous in your home, in your consumer products, in your electronics. They are everywhere. The pan is just the place where you come into most direct contact with them and when you're aware with them. But it's like Teflon industry is going to be pumping out Teflon you know, long after everyone gave up, gives up Teflon pans for whatever reason, it really has. Uh, and I, so I, I don't know what the right practice is to advance. And, you know, in don't the, you just wish that you could like go assign work to, you know, graduate level yeah. scientist people? <laughs> well, the thought has occurred to me that like, you know, uh, Mr. Beast uses his largesse to fund causes to uh, that he he likes um could we start taking some of the money from the channel and actually fund some actual scholarly research projects um you know unfortunately we're not making mr beast money yeah we need a Um, few hundred million more views and (laughs) subscribers right 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 i say we as if i have anything to do with well maybe it could be could it be like could we do like like a matching campaign like the the adam ragusea research fund or something and like i'll match dollar for dollar um every you know what people donate to it and we could set it up as like a nonprofit, and then we we would get a tax write-off if we put money to it you know um i want someone to do the the drummer's heart investigation yeah <laughs> i know that's not to do with that's food. a deep callback to the pod i talked about that on the pod. oh did you i did yeah so oh. so so completists the real fans <laughs> know what you're talking about <clears throat> and the rest of you can just be out in the cold <laughs> drummer's heart um well, I think we we want to try to keep it to kind of food and food food food, yes. food adjacent things. But yeah, maybe that's a thing to do. Like develop just a little kind of research, like fund. a giving circle. Yeah, and we could pay for kind of thing for things that home cooks are curious about, but that like nobody who actually funds real scholarly research gives a shit about, you know, because as I've talked about on the, on the program many times, like in terms of food science and food adjacent science, nutrition science, stuff like that, what tends to get the funding is either stuff that's of interest to agribusiness or, um, you know, large scale food manufacturing, food processing kind of stuff, or stuff that's of like serious public health import that gets funded by the government and you know, NIH and all that kind of stuff. Those are the things that get the money. And that actually leaves out a lot of questions that we have in the kitchen that not neither of those groups of people give two shits about. Um, but you know, maybe we could get enough money together that we could like, with the cooperation of the right university, 
if I can ever get a certain large university, large research university. Located a mile from our front door. A mile, a mile from our front door to actually answer any of my emails. Um, yeah, we could sort of, if we enlist the right institutional partner, maybe we could fund a few modest little studies and, and then get vids out of them. That'd be fun. Yeah, I bet if you email... Um, insert name a very large public university with the headline I would like to give you money <laughs> they would give back to you as opposed to That's right. may I interview your scientists yeah I'm emailing the wrong department I'm e- emailing communications I'm, not I need development. emailing development yeah exactly uh, uh, <laughs> uh, good times um, well that was are we done? I, I think we're done because we. I think we just came up with like a really good idea. Well, I want to ask you. This is a productive sesh, sesh. I want to ask you one last question that's not related to food. Can I do that? No, I'm going to edit it out. Oh, okay. Um, so, audience, you're not hearing this. <laughs> you're not. You're just imagining it. I just want to give you it as an. Uh, tip of the hat to the fact that you're about to get some free time back and have some brain space to think about things that aren't the YouTube channel and are your hobbies and passions. Mm. Passions. 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 (laughs) You get to put together a super group of musicians, alive or dead. Oh, no. Who do you pick? No, no. Don't do this to me. We need a drummer, a bass player, a lead guitar, a singer, and a keyboard, and keys. Wow. And you get to pick a producer if you want to. Oh, my God. Who do you want to produce produce the album oh oh you're killing me hold on l- let me take a guess what okay oh you're gonna oh you know freddie mercury on vocals maybe sure well, we do that neil pert on drums no 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 really well who would you guess is number two shit i don't know wait I don't know. Stuart Copeland. Ah, damn it. Stuart I should have known. Definitely my favorite drummer. And you know why that's funny? Because apparently at Neil uh, Peart, by the way, it's pronounced Sorry. Peart. Uh, Neil Peart, drummer of Rush, apparently at his funeral, um, Stuart Copeland got up there yeah. and like his opening, he opened with a joke as, as one mm-hmm. does in public speaking. And he said, the number of times I've been told, you're my second favorite drummer. <laughs> And everybody laughed and cried, I'm sure. Aw. Okay. I love them both, but yes. Absolutely. Eddie Van Halen on guitar. No. Jeez, I am not doing a good job. I like Eddie, but, you know. (sighs) Boy, who do I. You can give us an array if you need to. Maybe Steve Lukather. I don't. Who is that? The guy from Toto. Oh. uh, Which. You know, Toto, not my favorite band. Right. But, but they're Luke session like, players, so they're very yeah, good. Luke is probably like the, in terms of, if I was putting together a band and so I wanted versatility, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'd maybe go with, with the Luke because he can, the dude can just do anything. And he can, he can play like Eddie. He can play, you know, he, he played with Miles Davis. Like he can, he can do anything in between. I'm going to say, going to say Steve Lukather. Bass. Um, on Jaco Pastorius. That'd be a real weird band. I, I love Jocko Pastorius. I love Jocko, but that'd be a real weird band. Um, listeners, um, there was a minute where Adam was trying to convince me to name our first son Jocko after Jocko Pastorius. And I said, respectfully, no. He also suggested Jean-Luc after Jean-Luc 
Picard. <laughs> I would have done that if you weren't, if you weren't <laughs> if the, involved. Well, if I wasn't involved, there'd be no kids, so. <laughs> there would have been some kid. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I'm going to say Billy Sheehan, um, who, again, like, not I'm not a, the biggest fan of Mr. Big, Billy Sheehan's <laughs> band. I'm the one who wants to be with you. Yeah, like. I'm doing the dance. You're doing the head thing, yeah. <laughs> um, but Billy is like anyone who's a bass player knows Billy's. Billy is. Is tops. he the one you told me about? No, who's the one who he only ever did that that song and then went to New Jersey and he's been living off the money. No, for no, no. That's uh, oh, that's a great story. Um, uh, White Lion. White Lion, that band from the 80s, they had the song called Wait, 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 I Never Had a Chance to Love You. You know that one? I don't. Oh, you'd probably recognize it. Like if I played you a commercial for like Uh, How About Them 80s compilation (laughs) that, that, that like aired on television in 1998, you know, for like, you you know. To get all of these hits on their own compact discs, you'd have to spend $120. You're, but you get all of these hits for just nine ninety nine. dollars Please send chat cash, cash or money order to somewhere in Delaware, right? Like, <laughs> um, White Lion was like an 80s hair metal band that, um, that was sort of, it was like a Van Halen clone. I mean, there were a lot of Van Halen yeah. clones, but they were like really a Van Halen clone. Like even, they even looked like them. They had the same configuration. The drummer played like Alex Van Halen and did like that song, Wait, has this kind of cymbal chokes pre-chorus into the chorus that's in Van Halen's um, uh, Unchained, like the exact same. Anyway, so they were, but they were like, but like, like many sort of of the Van Halen clones, they were on paper like better than Van Halen. They were like better musicians, mm-hmm. um, and especially the singer, right? Like, is I mean, I love Diamond Dave, love David Lee Roth, but like he has some deficits, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, the the singer for White Lion could actually sing, and and they had this song, and so they had like one hit album with one hit song. And it had a guitar solo on it by their guitar player, who was just this like kind of shy kid from New Jersey um, named Vito something. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, wasn't he beautiful? Yeah, he, well, he was yeah, when he was a child. Yeah, I mean, when he was because it was it was really that was a good time to be like a a just barely post pubescent boy because the the aesthetic was femme, right? And so like if you um, you know, because it was you were trying to look as effeminate as possible, uh, um, and so and the long bl- lashes, yeah, long lashes, and just like perfect skin, and you didn't have to be like a big man, you know, <laughs> uh, in order to be attractive in that era, right? Yeah. So it was a good time to be like a twenty-year-old boy, like mm-hmm. you could look really good, um, and he did, you know, and but he played fantastically, be- mm-hmm. like totally, you know, he totally out Van Halen to Van Halen on the guitar and on that song, wait, like famously he was doing a scratch track because back in the day, like the whole band would play the song together, but usually they'd go back and re-record all of the instruments and the, the vocals. They were, they, the whole band would play together in order to get a drum track. Um, but then they'd go back and replace all of the other parts one by one. That's how that kind of recording was done. And so it was just the scratch track when they were doing the tracking the drums for weight and Vito, whatever his name is, famously played the, the, this gorgeous and very technically demanding guitar solo and just as a tossing it off because it was a scratch track and 
the the producer kind of came in over the over the talk back and said like, well, I think we've got the solo. And Vito was like, ah, no, I'll, I'll get it better later. And and like the producer said, Vito, I, I I don't think it. I think it literally doesn't get any better <laughs> than that. Like that it. And it's and it's you know go go listen to wait. It's a stupid song with a beautiful melodic gorgeous and technical guitar solo um and yeah and they had that hit and i think they made a second album that didn't like do very much because the 90s happened and all that music Nirvana died. Yeah, yeah exactly and just and completely ended the party um and the party deserved to be ended frankly and a lot of the, some of the first people who will tell you that is some of the participants in <laughs> said party right um the party needed to stop uh and yeah like he just like all of those other hair metal bands are out there on the, you know, the, the nostalgia circuit embarrassing themselves. And, you know, White Lion is just gone and because Vito is just went back to New Jersey and, and has un, probably enough publishing money from that one song to you know, kind of live a, a decent life. And, and he, like, I just think he just, that's so classy and awesome, <laughs> you know? It's so rad. Their bass player, White Lion's bass player, who's I can't remember his name, but he, you know, another another was absolutely beautiful in his mm-hmm. in his time as a young man and is still a very very fit um, you know, good good looking older guy. Um w- really great backup singer too, and he is uh he's in Megadeth now <gasps> because um Wait, okay. Junior Junior, the bass player in Megadeth had his thing with the thing. Did you hear about that? I don't know. Is is Dave Mustaine? Dave Mustaine's band, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Dave Ellison, Dave Jr. was the longtime bass player in Megadeth, and like he he kind of like in, he engaged in some oh uh, underage situation. Well, allegedly underage, but then denied by both parties. Denied that uh, the young woman in question was actually yeah, yeah, underage. Yeah. But like, yes, they kind of did some stuff via video chat. Got um, it. And Got the it. videos came out on the internet. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. So he's gone now. And so he's gone. And and now the guy from White Lion is the bass player in Megadeth. And I just want, do the Megadeth fans know that that's the, the weight guy? I just think that's kind of funny. Huh. But no, no hate on him. He's, he's a professional, you know, and he's, he's damn great. You have to give us a keyboard player. Oh, God, the original question. Um, Keys. Who's on the Ivories? And a producer. I don't... Let's say... Let's say Tony Banks from uh, Genesis. Uh-huh. I like his like his keyboards, his keyboarding. You could produce it. Well, that would be your secret. Well, duh, to yeah. Um, if Adam had been born and become a young man circa 1970... He would have been a record producer, and you would you would know all his music. I think I could have been good at that. I think that's could have really, would have I really believe that's true. Well, yeah. you couldn't because you couldn't have been. You were born in 1982, so it's not a could have would have should have. It is didn't born too late. <laughs> I feel bad because I feel like everybody in the audience is now thinking about all the things that they were destined to do that they had the natural ability to do and they couldn't because of circumstances they couldn't do. And that's a, that's a bummer of a thought, you know? Holy moly, Adam. <laughs> I don't think anyone was thinking about that. Oh, really? Until you said that. Should, shouldn't end on that. <laughs> no. Should have ended back at underage 
Oh, <laughs> video no. chat play. Man, I asked like what I thought was going to be a fun thought experiment question. and We came to existential dread and yeah. allegedly underage. Sorry, there you I go. should say. Yikes. Cover, cover my butt legally. Yikes. Still think Dave Ellison is a cool dude. But assuming, assuming the young person involved was not actually underage, which apparently the, person, the young person involved has said that they were not underage at the time. And assuming that's true, I have no problem with what consenting adults get up to over the internet. <laughs> and, uh, and, in, and if that's all the case, then Dave Ellison is still a cool dude in my book. I can't believe we're ending on that. I can't either. We have to come up with something else. Wait, no, no, no. It's, it's hold kinda, on, hold on, hold on. Funny. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. You know, I've developed a tagline. What is it? Um, I've been telling everybody uh, to make good choices. And it seems apt here, right? Wait, your tagline is make good choices. Make good choices. Like you and every mom on the planet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. So uh, you know whether you're whether you're cooking something or uh, chasing that career that you were destined to have but circumstances denied from you, or if you're getting up to consensual video chat things with other adults, uh, make good choices. And I'll talk to you next time. Pew. <laughs>